Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Open Floor. I'm Andrew Sharp, and on the other line, Ben Golliver. What's up, man? Not too much, Andrew. First off, I feel like I need to defend you because for some reason, the open floor mail at gmail.com emailers over the weekend were really coming after you. And they were essentially, there was one strain that said you have Stockholm syndrome and you're now just <laughs> laying down in arguments against me. And there was another strain that said, you know, maybe you should be fighting for your wizards a little bit harder and, and not, you know, trying to distance yourself right before the playoffs. Right. I think these people fail to realize we spent like the first five minutes of the last podcast explaining that you were sick. And if anyone has ever been sick before, which I hope most of our listeners have been, you'll understand you don't really want to get into arguments about petty, trivial things when you're sick. You just want to get through it. So guys, ease up on Andrew, please. Well, that's definitely part of it. I'm also increasingly wary of repping the Wizards whatsoever. So like... I wasn't really trying to like stand up for for John Wall's honor at the beginning of that episode, but uh, but we'll see where we'll see what happens over the next few weeks. Who knows? And we'll see what happens over the next hour or so because I think we're doing the All NBA teams right. And for some reason, I've been over here kind of preparing all morning because I just have this inkling that you're going to come hard with some hot takes on these All NBA and award selections. Am I right? I don't know. Last year when we did our awards, it. Beyond MVP, which was like a death battle, we agreed on almost everything, and it was a little bit creepy, so I'm curious to see whether that repeats itself this year. Uh, but I don't know. It should it should be fun. It's time to dive in. Let's talk... Let's start with MVP. I know we talked about it last week, but we really only talked about Harden. Um, so a question from JP here. He says, indulge me for a minute. If the... Most valuable player is about determining value. How can you argue for Harden? If you had him on these Cavs and LeBron on these Rockets, who is the most valuable? Tell me. CP, Gordon, Ariza, Braun, and Capella. They can't win 65 games? And imagine how much sulking James Harden would do on these Cavs. I don't see why Harden is a shoe-in just because Maury is a better GM than Braun and Kobe Altman. Do you guys have any thoughts? What do you think? Well, I think this is a little too unreality based for my liking. You know, it's a little too hypothetical when you when you play those uh, games of like, oh, switch these two guys. How would it go? Uh, you do stray from what's actually happened. And I think the first point is it takes multiple years to build any team, right? Or to deconstruct any team. And so I think when you're looking at an annual award, like you have to take into effect the context of, okay, Houston labored for three years trying to figure out the right type of guys to get around James Harden to make him look uh, like his best self. They finally found the right mix. And lo and behold, he delivers with the franchise record of wins. um, And, you know, everybody's happy and hunky-dory. Uh, you know, by contrast, you have to look at the context of Cleveland where, you know, personality issues or whatever else you want to call it, uh, LeBron factors in uh, to maybe them taking a step back. But I also would push back on his contention that Houston with LeBron would just cruise to 65 wins because the Rockets have had an incredible esprit de corps this year. I mean, they have been trying to wow. stomp everyone. Nice and that was there. Tr- I like it. That was true when Chris Paul was injured, and it's it's been true since he came back. I mean, no one has enjoyed, uh, you know, basically picking apart the bodies of its opponents quite like the Rockets this year. It was much like the Warriors 
uh, you know, in 2015. Yes. And that hasn't been LeBron's MO since basically, you know, the, the winning streak uh, Heat team. You know, he's coasted. He's taken a month off here and there. And I think if you surrounded him with more talent, he would be more likely to coast not less. And I think, you know, a lot of their wins in Houston have come just from having that maintained consistent uh, effort and execution night in, night out, you know, not taking games off. And so uh, from that standpoint, I give Harden a lot of credit for that. We've bagged on his leadership in the past, you know, a few years ago, he looked like a terrible leader. Yeah. Uh, you know, he wasn't getting along with, uh, you know, Dwight Howard. To me this year, when you have a team that's as dominant as they've been, and they should finish the season number one in point differential and number one in wins, uh, you have to give credit to the leader of that team for keeping the the group that focused and that committed uh, and that diligent. And so from that standpoint, James Harden's my guy, and I don't find the role reversal argument very compelling. Uh, I like it. I agree with most of what you said. I, I certainly agree that the, the Rockets have been a, spe- a special kind of surgical this year that I don't know if they would have been quite as coherent with LeBron there. They may have had just as high of a ceiling. Um, But uh, the only other thing, and and I include this because I've seen this argument on the internet a number of times over the last few weeks. The other thing I would push back on is that, like, I think if you put Harden on the Cavs in LeBron's place, I'm not sure that they would be, they would have as high a ceiling in, like, like, as you head toward the playoffs. But I think he could get them to... 48 to 52 wins which is where the Cavs are going to be at, at the end of the year here and uh and it's part of the deal with Harden and part of why I've been so impressed with him this year and it's kind of been like a little bit of an awakening it's he's one of the three or four players in the league where you can put him on a number of different teams and he can go get them 50 wins and uh and I think it speaks to how much the Cavs have underachieved that that like that that is the been their ceiling they're only going to be a 50 win team this year but uh i think harden would not have been like a complete disaster in cleveland that's all i'll say you know you know i'm actually willing to go the other way on that and kind of side with jp i can completely envision a scenario where harden and isaiah thomas show up to training camp and they're just throwing <laughs> basketballs at each other and then isaiah thomas has to go down you know because well, harden's sort of it's not funny completely the, locked yeah, in the possibility of sulking is definitely real if if you throw harden into cleveland this year and just, you know, the, the same, uh, I guess, chemistry and cohesion with all the guys in and out of the lineup. I think LeBron is like the perfect person to carry a team when the, the lineups are always rotating because of injury. I think for Harden's style of offense, uh, you know, he's really benefited from having most of his guys healthy around him. But my point is this. That's just the hypothetical. That's not what happened. That's what could have theoretically happened. I think we should be concentrating most of our mental energy on the facts before us, the seasons that these guys had in their respective homes. And, you know, from that standpoint, I look at Houston and they're probably going to have 65 or 66 wins versus like LeBron, like you said, with 50. That is a huge, huge gap. I think Houston's like only going to be the 11th team uh, to ever reach that mark. They're going to have a top 10 all-time offense. uh, And Harden has figured in all of that. He's also improved from last year, by the way. You know, the revenge factor is very real. And I know there's sexier storylines like LeBron playing all 82 games and the Valiant stuff that we mentioned before. But Harden had an MVP caliber season last year. He didn't win it. And he came back more efficient. He has a higher usage. Uh, he's he's led his team to a better offense. He's basically improved in all the most important and meaningful ways. And, and for that standpoint, you know, I have no reservations about picking him over LeBron James. All right. So give me the rest of your order. 
Drum roll, please. <laughs> Here we uh, go. <laughs> Anthony Davis, number three. Okay. Damian Lillard, number four. And Kevin Durant, number five. Wow. Okay. All right. Well, so we agree mostly. Um, I have to say, I was prepared to, and I explained last week that I was I was penalizing LeBron for the like six weeks vacation he took in the middle of the season uh and i was prepared to put him at like number four number five but watching him against the sixers on friday night was just a reminder of how absurd he's been for like the the last two months now and uh so he's my number two despite my misgivings with the way he handled like the middle of this cleveland season uh and i agree with you anthony davis number three dame lillard number four Number five, I really struggled with um, because it just, you could nominate like five or six different guys. I think I'm going to say Joel Embiid, and I haven't decided 100% yet. Um, I thought about throwing LaMarcus Aldridge in there, but that was a little bit boring. Victor Oladipo, I considered, um, and then I've seen other places have Giannis fifth too, but to me, like... If you're going to have Giannis fifth, Embiid has been just as valuable for a better team. And uh, and I think like when you look across the league, like Embiid is right there. And KD, I sort of understand, except he has struggled. I mean, the Warriors, this is probably a topic that we can hit on Friday, but they've looked pretty rough the last couple of weeks with just KD. And uh, so I don't know. I'm, I'm going with Embiid, I think. Yeah, I think I would have been very inclined uh, to put Embiid on my top five had he been able to finish out the season healthy. I mean, that's a little bit unfortunate. His games played, uh, you know, suffers because of that. Also, you know, Durant hasn't had uh, perfect health either, uh, but I think he's going to wind up playing meaningfully more games. And I just think, like, Durant's averaging 26-7-5. Like, he's not struggling. He's having a pretty good season for a really, really good team. And when in doubt, I usually favor... Uh, you know, the best teams in the league by record. And uh, it just seemed to make sense for that fifth spot for him. I was also looking at a guy like Giannis and Embiid, like you mentioned, a couple of our guys in that last spot, Oladipo as well. But ultimately I defaulted for Durant. Okay. In terms of LeBron though, we, we shouldn't gloss over his season. I mean, I, I believe he's going to have career highs in, uh, you know, assists and rebounds. He's going to lead the league in minutes. Uh, most likely he's going to play all 82 games. It's been a sen- sensational, phenomenal season. If you look at his points, rebounds, and assists, the only guys who have put up the same numbers uh, during the three-point era are Westbrook and Harden from last season when those guys were dueling for the MVP. So, like, he has had an A-plus season. Uh, you know, the the only difference to me between him and Harden is just the team impact Houston's offense is better and their record is better. But uh, I think in like nine out of 10 years, LeBron would have won the MVP. Yeah. Well, I mean, it also like this was a weird Cavs season. Like it, it's it that can't be overlooked. What do you think about my take that eventually this Harden MVP is going to look like the Carl Malone MVP in 1997 or 98? I, the only way that happens is if uh they just bomb out of the playoffs. You know, I think if they make the Western Conference Finals, I think people will see it as Harden's turn. I think more likely everyone's going to look back at LeBron's last five years and be like, how did anyone do that? <laughs> you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, how, how is that possible? Because you're going to get to the stage where we start comparing his age 33 seasons to like other guys at the same age. Right. And 
he's already smashing all of those uh, records. And because offense is up and all the things we've talked about, uh, that's kind of inflated statistics a little bit here recently. Like that is really going to, you know, continue to serve his purpose in those conversations. Like, you know, age 35 LeBron versus age 35 Kobe is going to get real ugly well, real quick. I also you know? think with LeBron, he may not finish his career with like six or seven MVPs. But when we look back at the body of work, part of what people use to describe his greatness will be that like he was so unbelievable year after year that people got tired of voting for him, which is the same thing that people talk about with MJ. And that's just going to become part of the LeBron story. And uh, and I think it might be accurate because, look, if you're arguing LeBron should win MVP, you can say he's out there with Seti Osman and Jeff Green and like fucking Lakers cast offs and he's like he the Cavs are still a good team because he's that amazing and uh and that's a fair argument I get it yeah I think the the better way to look at LeBron is that he did enough to keep himself in position to make the finals every single year he managed the season probably better than yeah most anyone but the difference with Jordan is like Jordan in all those years where you know, guys like myself gripe that he didn't win the MVP. He's still winning 60 plus games, you know, and sometimes easily. Uh, that just hasn't been the case for LeBron in a number of the seasons where he hasn't won. His team just hasn't been on that elite level. And part of that is because he paces himself defensively. Part of that is because you know, he's had some minor things here and there where he takes a week or two off and his team falls apart. You know, that's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, I think his legacy is the final streak uh, and always being in the mix and, you know, the consistent excellence and, uh, there's no way LeBron could, you know, try to compile 60 plus win seasons every single year and still do what he's been doing here, uh, you know, this late in his career. I think something had to give. Yeah. Well, look, it's time to move on because I think most everybody agrees on MVP, and uh, it's time to move to some more contentious categories here, beginning with Rookie of the Year. Um, a lot of different places we can start. We'll start with this question from Morgan, who says. Why does Ben Simmons claim he hasn't noticed any other rookie? I'm pretty sure he has commented on both Mitchell and Tatum this year specifically. What's the point of him making that comment when we all know it isn't true? Is he just trying to annoy people or has he really been learning from Papa LeBron? I think Morgan Morgan sounds like he's from Utah. Um, what did you think of the comments to, to, to begin with here? Uh, ben Simmons saying he has not been impressed by any other rookies in the league. Well, I think it was a brilliant PR stroke from him because I do too. it guaranteed a gigantic headline right as voters are making their determination. It was also a subtle reminder that he's played on an all-NBA level. Now, I left him off my all-NBA team, spoiler alert, but he was in the mix for sure. Okay. Uh, and, and he's also said previously that he's not trying to compare himself to other rookies. He's trying to compare himself to the best players in the league, right? Mm-hmm. So. Was it a subtle dig? Was it a way to get some attention? Was it a way for him to kind of project confidence, uh, you know, as sort of the early, uh, you know, probably uh, straw poll leader? Uh, I think so. To me, those comments are meaningless. They're not they're not going to influence who I decide to vote for. And hopefully they don't swing anybody. Rest easy, America. Ben Simmons is not swaying Ben Golliver. Yeah, I will say this about the about the comments like. I think Ben Simmons doesn't have much of a personality, so being just overtly arrogant is kind of a good lane for him uh, because, I mean, he's been pretty brash the handful of times we've heard him speak publicly on, in like a, 
a national f- setting and uh and I think that's good for him because like he doesn't really have that much else to say but uh if you're going to if you're going to talk like let's spice it up I appreciate him for that um well, I like to picture Ben Simmons and Rich Paul and all those guys sitting around sort of a planning meeting, and they're like, okay, well, you know, Donovan Mitchell made some rookie of the year socks with Stance socks, so we got to have our counter. Like, what are we going to do? Socks. I, Stance mailed me them. Shout out to Stance. Yeah, no question. But uh, what's our counter, right? And they're thinking, like, well, when you were playing that video game with Carl Anthony Towns, you just completely wrecked the Atlanta Hawks, and everyone thought it was hilarious. I think total confidence and, like you're saying, arrogance is now the way to play yeah, all these situations and run run with it. <laughs> lean into it. Like, if you are enough of a condescending dickhead, eventually it'll become charming, particularly if he continues to be awesome on the court. So it's a, it's a decent brand for him. Um and by the yeah, way, you, you lost Elizabeth's vote, but I think Ben Simmons <laughs> is going to gain the vote. And let me just be clear. It was a tough vote because I had to decide between the player who's got the best first name in the NBA and the player who reps the state where I think it's, you know, basically heaven for offseason travel. Yeah. Right. So that's a very, Ben's very difficult stick decision. Together. Absolutely. I, I went with Simmons, though, and I've been seeing everyone freak out about this race. To me, isn't the gap between their defensive effectiveness, Ben Simmons's? and uh, Donovan Mitchell's enough to make this not an easy decision, but at least one where you don't have to stay well, up until 4 a.m. Well, over it. well, 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 we're going to get to that. I, wanna, I want you to explain yourself on one point here, and Nathan brought it up. He said, prior to the season, Ben Golliver went on and on about the Western Conference being the show and the Eastern Conference being AAA. Now we have two Rookie of the Year candidates. One of these candidates is the leading scorer for a team who shall be the third or fourth best team in the show. That's This same player is the leading scorer of a team that has the fifth best point differential of any team in the NBA. This same player is scoring over 20 a game against much better competition. This is not taking a shot at Ben Simmons, but Donovan Mitchell's body of work over the course of the season shows that he has earned this award. I'm sure Golliver will respond that Simmons has been much better down the stretch. However, that's against tanking teams. How is this any different than Westbrook down the stretch last year? So oh, come well, on. Well, what do you think? I'm curious. Well, his body of work is better if you only include his strengths and you don't mention any of the other <laughs> things. Look, first of all, as far as the show goes, as of right now, according to my calculations, the West is 236 and 213 against the East this year, which is basically... Uh, a 53 winning percentage. Um, that's pretty impressive if you consider how many major stars missed tons and tons of time in the, in the West, Western yeah. Conference. So, uh, you know, it was the show again, you know, AAA, sorry. You know, we, <laughs> we are going to acknowledge that up front. I don't think we should be picking all of our awards solely based on conference affiliation. I think that would be pretty silly. And you line the two players up. Simmons is a significantly better passer. Yes, I've seen Donovan Mitchell's playmaking ability. It's really impressive. It's not as good as Ben Simmons. Uh Ben Simmons is a better rebounder. Uh, Their teams are very similar in terms of record and point differential, which he conveniently left out. And then defensively, I don't think it's close. I think Simmons is a very, very, very good defensive player already out of the gate. Um, and you know, once you get to that level, the counters start to be things like, well, well, he's not really a rookie and look, (laughs) he qualifies for the award. You know, if, if you want to change the, the criteria, that's fine by me, but I'm voting based off what the criteria are this year. And to me, it's Simmons, uh, followed by Mitchell, 
followed by Tatum, number three. I love when you bring out the well, well voice on the pod. It's one of my favorite Golliver trademarks. Um, yeah, I mean, look, I, I think the most obnoxious take of the past month slash six weeks have, have been people saying it's not close. And you sort of alluded to it there. Um, I, I don't know. I, to me, it's really, really close. Like, Donovan Mitchell has been asked to do more for Utah, and he has responded better than anyone could have dreamed. Um, he kept their season from falling apart. Like, he legitimately changed the trajectory of the franchise. Like, not only this season, but going forward for the next five years because he's been that good. There's now, like, real hope of building a contender from here. And, uh, I mean, he's been closing games for them in a much tougher conference. And, like, to me, I understand what you're saying about Simmons and and, and how he has a more well-rounded game. Um, and I think there are a lot of people who are going to judge this based on PER and efficiency. And, and Simmons grades out a little bit better in, in those areas because he rebounds more. He shoots a really high percentage, which is much easier to do when you're not taking shots outside of like eight feet. But I like the the debate here and the idea that it isn't close is an example of where the internet and blog boys sometimes get lost in the weeds a little bit because what Mitchell has done is crazy fucking impressive. Like his his, his skill, a scorer capable of closing out wins for a playoff team is much more valuable than Simmons's rebounding and defense and passing. Like it's, it's the difference between the value of a guy like Kyrie Irving and the value of a guy like Al Horford. Like I understand no, Simmons. Come no, on, it dude. Is. He's averaging, he's averaging 16, eight and eight guys never do that. And look, I hear what you're saying about all, oh, you know, anyone who says it's so close. So we, we uh, that's, that's missing the point. You know what? I've heard so many people say that exact same point. I'm sick of that point. That's true. We know it's that close. Is becoming, it's that been is close becoming for months. equally annoying. I'll grant you that. No question. I'm just saying that like the ability to close games for a team and be the, leading score and it's not necessarily about like points per game but the the ability to be sort of the catalyst of an offense is a really hard job it it has a steeper curve than uh than Simmons who is basically just helping out in a bunch of different areas and no see you're falling into the hero ball trap man Philadelphia's got a better overall offense than Utah and they have virtually identical defenses and Simmons has performed why do you think they have a better sides of the ball do you think it's because of Simmons or because of Embiid because the ball is in Simmons' head, he's really, really good as a playmaker, and they they involve everyone. It's not just about hitting those you know big shots and scoring lots of points in the fourth quarter. What about the other three quarters? What about the non-clutch time? And what about all of those quality minutes that Ben Simmons has put together over the course of the entire season? He started strong. He closed strong. Look, hold up, hold up. I'm not saying that any of that is meaningless. What I'm saying is that if we're being honest— the categories where the category that Donovan Mitchell is excelling in is more valuable than what Simmons is excelling in. It's more valuable than half the game in defense and rebounding and playmaking for your teammates and having a more efficient offense and having a similar defense. Yes. No, it is. Come category on. versus category, it is. It absolutely no, is. Oh, come on. You're going to have to do a better job explaining it to that or articulate this idea. 
No, honestly, so I'm I'm playing devil's advocate here. I am voting Simmons, but what I'm saying is that it is actually a really interesting debate about what we value in basketball. And I think if I wanted to be less of a troll, I think I misconstrued the the Kyrie Irving Al Horford uh dichotomy there i think it's closer to like Kyrie's value versus the value of peak draymond and you there's a really good argument that peak draymond is more valuable than peak Kyrie. but i just think that like it is a pretty interesting debate and i think a lot of people have been overly reductive in the way that they break this down and the way they make it seem as though simmons is is like the clear-cut choice like any smart person knows that it's simmons like hold on there's a really good argument for donovan mitchell that's that's all i'm saying slow down though let's really figure this out are you just torching straw men that don't exist are there really people out there other than sixers fans who are saying that this is i think some overwhelming (laughs) vote because i'm voting simmons i'm not thinking twice about it i did thoroughly Uh analyze my choice but I'm picking Simmons. But I don't see these so-called people who are, you know, snubbing Donovan Mitchell. I think you're just getting into that Utah bunker mentality. No, it may be that I think the the real problem is that I'm inundated with Sixers fans for a variety of reasons. <laughs> it's just I don't know how we got here, but I have way too many Sixers fans in my life. And that's it's it's probably true that most people agree that it's just really close. Um and I I will say I'm voting Simmons because I think on balance he's had a higher baseline and I think if you're going to criticize Donovan Mitchell it's that like he'll have two great weeks and one kind of shaky week and I think he's played like half of his games like a top 20 player and half of his games like a top 60 player whereas Simmons is solidly in the top 25 every night so he wins for consistency which I think is probably more boring but whatever um but uh I don't know they're both they're both incredible and i think both people they like they've they've blown everyone away yeah look i think if you want to have the real contrarian stance you could say look bed simmons or donovan mitchell they could keep the rookie of the year award because jason tatum's playing for championships and finals <laughs> mvps so who cares about this little rookie stuff you know like if i was a celtics fan that's what i would be saying because you know simmons is framing kind of the way he was trying to make it sound like is like i'm not really a rookie you know i'm i'm better than the rookie of the year award or i'm I, competing with legends i'm in lebron's category now yeah and i think tatum should try to you know one up him, get you know raise the horse like hit the little (laughs) up button on the elevator i'm competing with larry and russell absolutely i'd be into that but anyway that's where i'm at Uh, i think it's close Uh, i didn't love donovan mitchell but i will say this you were right he made it a much more compelling race when you first were floating that whenever that was early december I was kind of scoffing at the idea. Come on, you're overanalyzing. He made it a very legit race. He's absolutely the reason why, combined with Gobert's return, that they just soared up the Western Conference standings. And everything they've done has been spectacular uh, and, you know, in some cases, awe-inspiring. But Simmons has been really, really good. Well, Simmons has been really, really good. Uh, I, I think Mitchell is interesting because he has a pretty clear path to being like a full-blown superstar. I mean, he's shooting 33% from three this year, I think, he, low 30s. And if he can get that up to 38 or 39, like he suddenly becomes basically unstoppable. Um, and uh, like, I I would bet on that. I would bet on him improving over the next couple of years and being at that like Damian Lillard level of point guard. Um, Simmons is a lot more interesting to me. You 
I th- we were talking over the weekend. You said he he is likely to be a first ballot Hall of Famer. Do you can you explain that? No, I just he's really young and really really good. His passing and vision and court awareness is all excellent. I think everyone focuses on his lack of jumper, but his ability to put pressure on the basket to take his guy to draw double teams to pick those defenses apart is elite already. You know from from day one, yeah. and it was obvious. Uh, as soon as he got back on the court in November, and it's even more obvious here over the last month where you know they're dissecting teams left to right. It's not just tanking teams they're beating. I mean, they, they went head-to-head with uh, the Cavaliers in a really entertaining game, and you could see how if you have the right roster construction around him, uh, he is going to be a perennial all-star for the next 10 years. And I don't think that's you know like green-colored optimism like we, we've seen with Tatum. I mean, I think it's he's probably going to be a starter on next year's all-star team if you really think about it. And they have a real good shot at making the Eastern Conference Finals right now. So uh, I think those are just some of the things that get me excited about him. One other point, though, to kind of push back on this idea, oh, he's a red shirt. That argument bothers me because he's like a whopping month and a half older than Donovan Mitchell. I mean, these guys are basically the same age, right? So to me, when when you're charting these things, it's much more important to go by age than to go by anything else. And that's why I've advocated previously for like the Rising Stars Award where it doesn't matter if you're a rookie or not. It's just who's the best player under a certain age because that's how we look at guys when they're coming up through the high school ranks. You know, if guys are reclassifying this, that, or the other thing, you want to know how old they are. Both these guys are 21. They both had phenomenal seasons, and we shouldn't say just because Simmons happened to turn pro earlier, he disqualifies from the Rookie of the Year award. I mean, come on. Yeah. Let me tell you something, Ben. If Donovan Mitchell were 18 or 19, I would be making that argument, but it's definitely... Like Utah fans don't have a leg to stand on on that one because of the same age deal. Um, yeah, I, the the Simmons, what he turns into, I think, is one of the most interesting questions in the NBA right now. Um, I, the best comparison I've seen uh, was from our Twitter friend Sam Esfandiari uh, of the of Warriors World, um, and then. Uh, the and he was talking about Rex Chapman describing Ben Simmons as like new age Jason Kidd, like it, the the equivalent of what Jason Kidd was in the mid nineties, and uh, and I think that makes a lot of sense. Like he's a freak athlete, he's really good on defense, and he's so good in in basically every phase of the game that it doesn't matter that he can, he can't shoot. And, uh, but he's also playing, he's playing above the rim too. You know, I mean, that's a whole nother dimension where, you know, that is a good comparison. I like it, but the, the above the rim factor makes it, you know, so much more difficult because if he gets within five feet of the hoop, he's a threat to dunk it on your head. Uh, and, and he also finishes so much better than I think a lot of people would have expected coming into this year. I mean, aside from just the dunking, like his hook shot is legitimately, reliable and like and he he hits most of them and uh and i think that's the element that i certainly wasn't expecting yeah and he's got some cheeky stuff around the you know the mid paint too where you know little fadeaways and turnarounds and stuff where like it's not the prettiest thing of the world but he could score uh so yeah i i think the, the focus he gets knocked because he's a big target because he's so skilled in so many ways and his flaws obvious um, and I, yeah. I've been well, maybe it, I'm a little defensive of him, but I'm I want to defend Simmons on his age and, and what year he's in. I want to defend him <laughs> on his lack of shooting because of everything else that he does, uh, and I want to defend him on his contribution to winning because 
Uh, I was absolutely someone who fell into the Embiid hype a little bit too deeply at Simmons' expense. I mean, if there's one thing I would take well, back— Well, he's gotten better. Simmons has gotten better over the last two months. Like, wh- what we were saying about him relying on Embiid may have been true in December, and he's evolved as the year's gone on. I mean, the, and the numbers bear that out. For sure. If you look how we analyze, like, the Steph Curry injury, the Embiid injury, the Kyrie injury, I mean— of any of those things that I would take back, it would be to say that Philly couldn't get by offensively without Embiid because over the course of the season, they have fallen apart. I mean, Simmons has done such a great job of uh, increasing his own role in Embiid's absence, making the right pass, and then pressuring defense, like I mentioned earlier, to the point where their offense has been you know, pretty insane night to night consistently here over the last couple of weeks. And, you know, that, uh, again, that's really hard to do if you're a non-shooter, but you have to have a right uh, package of skills to get around it. And he just happens to have all of those skills. You know what he's really, really good at? I'm not as, like, crazy impressed by his vision as you are. Uh, You were comparing him to LeBron the other night, and, like, I don't totally see that. But I think he is great at making quick decisions like it takes him a millisecond to keep the ball moving and that's an underrated skill and uh and it's part of what makes the Sixers so impossible to to defend and uh I yeah Yeah. and on top of that he's if he gets sorry he doesn't even need a three-pointer if he gets a like 15 foot jumper he becomes a a top five player in the league like automatically um And we'll see, you know. Not only that, is he good at making quick decisions? He's great at making decisions at full speed, and he's great at getting to full speed. He controls the pace of a game like very few players. I mean, he's like Draymond. I've always given Draymond a lot of credit for being able to do that. But when you have a handle that's significantly better than Draymond's handle, and you have vision that's better than Draymond's vision, and he has the size to clear that defensive rebound and just go, um, or take it through traffic and, and get to his spots and finish with either hand, I mean, that is a absolute weapon. And, you know, he sees shooters sometimes where he's not even looking. And half the time, I think he's just passing the ball to nowhere and a guy just happens to be in the spot. So, you know, that says something about the chemistry <laughs> and the cohesion they've built yeah. up here over the course of this season. But uh, this guy is pretty special. Yeah, well, and I think my instinct to push back on him is sometimes I watch him and it's so clear that he just wants to get the ball out of his hands. And I think my, like real hooper brain is just like why doesn't why doesn't this guy want the ball and uh that's a stupid way to look at it and i've evolved over this over the course of the season look simmons prefers wins not buckets okay come on yeah yeah exactly well and he's he's winning uh we'll we'll see i'm I'm fascinated to see how he holds up in the playoffs as well uh but moving on to an equally contentious category although this is one where i think everybody is paying so much respect to one another that there's there's less of a flame war but coach of the year we'll kick it off with Stewart who says is Quinn Snyder given enough credit he's exceeded expectations with a young overhauled roster he's developed a rookie into an all-star caliber player he appears to have even gotten Ricky Rubio shooting half decent decently which is nothing short of a miracle why isn't he worthy of coach of the year what do you think I mean, he's definitely, you know, firmly in the conversation. I actually did not have him on my top three, which was tough. 
and I had uh-huh. Mitchell second in my rookie of the year voting. So I'm just going to spoil the fact that I had Gobert as my defensive player of the year when I was trying to apportion. <laughs> to make it up to the people of Utah yeah. so they don't unsubscribe. Well, look, I was trying to apportion credit, right? And like, no, sure. Snyder's not in this conversation if Gobert doesn't come back, right? Like, he's just a coach who's really good, but doesn't didn't have the talent. I mean, their their season to me, it turned around when he kind of came back into the fold uh, from his injury. And I think, um, you know, they would not have had that turnaround narrative had Gobert just stayed healthy the whole way. And Gobert would have been the runaway defensive player of the year award with no conversation had he stayed healthy the whole way. So, um, mm-hmm. that, that's kind of why I came down against Snyder. I mean, my pick was actually Brett Brown. Um, you know, it, Ooh. it's tricky because, uh, I love it. I love Brett Brown. He's the, probably my favorite human in the NBA. So yeah. hit me. I mean, I was coming at it from, you know, both Brad and Dwayne Casey having really, really strong cases, but never in a million years did I think Philly was going to win 50 games this season, even if they are playing in AAA, like other people said, and nobody, uh, not very many people picked that. I mean, that was essentially past their best case scenario. And so from that standpoint, uh, I think he did it all with young players, largely young players. Uh, but he also gets some bonus points for sitting through the entire process and maintaining sanity during a three or four year stretch there, <laughs> doesn't he? I mean, it's pretty yeah. amazing that he kept his job. I don't know if this is a career achievement award, but that's definitely part of what makes it such a cool story. Well, yeah, the guys who he's getting quality contributions from, though, had to go through it. You know, like he had to build trust up, not only with Embiid yep. or Simmons, but also guys like Covington. Um, and you know, they're fun to watch that's play, actually too. A really, it's a really good point because I think you could make a good argument that most coaches losing that many, many games, even if it wasn't their fault, even if there are all kinds of extenuating circumstances, most coaches would have lost the locker room in that setting and uh and he never did and i mean i was there in september talking to everybody on the sixers and like all of those guys swear by coach brown and uh and and just love that dude which is like a special thing and he deserves credit for it he also made the right decision putting the ball in ben simmons's hand i mean i remember certain podcasters saying ben simmons (laughs) super controversial is not a point guard i remember that one you know wasn't there almost a fight at training camp between you and simmons over that one (laughs) totally score that one for simo but uh yeah no kidding but also they're very good on both sides of the ball elite defense and usually that means the coach is getting through to guys and they have a lot of good defensive pieces Embiid, Covington, Simmons I mean all those guys are sort of like in that all defensive conversation but um, to be able to have that night in night out after just the atrocity they went through the previous seasons in terms of you know basically uh, openly try to lose games that's impressive too so I just don't know how many other coaches could have done what he did it just seemed like it was the most you know unique and standout season uh, you know, given uh, the the entire circumstances coming into this year. Yeah, and I would add that he deserves credit for, I mean, it's just a really unconventional roster, um, particularly when you throw in the fact that like half those guys are 21 and 22, and then the other half is like a team full of 30-year-olds, and he's he's woven in the veterans really well and uh particularly over the last two months um he's done a really good job i like i I think Dwayne casey his candidacy seems to be losing steam but we shouldn't overlook how depressing this raptor season was supposed to be i I think this was the year that like almost everyone kind of quietly assumed that the raptors 
were going to get stale and depressing, and uh, it went the complete opposite direction. He deserves a ton of credit. Um, Snyder, I, I think he, your read on it is is right, that if we're apportioning credit for, for what's happened to Utah, like it's so clearly tied to Gobert's return. Um, but, I mean, they've done a phenomenal job. For me, I'd, I would also throw in Popovich, too. For me, I think there are five guys who deserve coach of the year and I ended up coming down to it and saying you know if I had to win a game which who's the best coach who would I take and I for me it's Brad Stevens because he's just been I mean he's the best coach in basketball and I think like if you put Brad Stevens in Milwaukee they would win 57 games and the Celtics would have 40 wins and like that's ultimately how I decided it is. He's just the best coach and there are like four or five guys who deserve it, but Stevens is better. So you said pop lost a step. Is that what happened? Or, or how are you, how are you justify this? <laughs> if you know what, if I had to like build a culture, I would choose Popovich. If I had to win one game, I would choose Brad Stevens. Uh, I'm going to need some more because Greg Popovich is kind of smirking. You know, he's been playing in the show for 20 years. Uh, you know what, man? Pop has lost some big games too. So although I guess so is Brad Stevens. I don't know. I Look, you, you can agree to disagree, but I mean, I think it's a tier of two at the top of the league as, at, at this point. And now Steve Kerr's getting angry at you. I mean, are you are you trying to to incite riots from uh, <laughs> the guys who have been regarded as the best, or are you just throwing stuff out here at this point? I need to hear some, you know, back this up. I mean, what's Stevens you doing? What? What's is he just the fact that he's getting wins and guys are staying bought in because Kyrie's been injured and they didn't have Hayward, they didn't you know throw the season away? I mean, what is it that you're seeing that you're that's making you have this bold oh. claim? Well, I I sort of assumed that part was self-explanatory. Yeah, their ability to keep it together and win as many games as they have this year is kind of staggering. And he, I mean, Jason Tatum, nobody last year could have imagined he would be this valuable on defense. And Tatum deserves credit for that too. But a lot of that is Stevens. And a lot of that is Stevens with Jalen Brown and and optimizing what Jalen Brown does well. And like, uh, I think you just go up and down that roster like the Celtics have gotten the absolute most out of every single player on the, on that team. And like, that's Brad Stevens. That's sort of what coaching is. And um, so it's not a knock on anyone else. I, I think I would be pumped if Brett Brown won it. I would be pumped if Dwayne Casey won it in part, because I think those guys are not recognized as often as Stevens is. But if, if it comes down to it, I got to go with a guy who is, is just the best. Sounds good. I have Casey at second, uh, Brad Stevens as third. Um, I, I agree with you that people might be turning on the Raptors just because of this slow finish. But look, that happens for teams when you're, you know, they don't have a ton to play for. Obviously, there was that first seed was at the light on the line there for like, you know, a split second. So uh, it got a little dicey, but it's hard to keep a team involved in April, you know, kicking at full cylinders when you've been playing hard all season long. And I don't hold that against them. Uh, in terms of yeah. the stylistic changes, the roles, the use of the bench, you know, showing his own flexibility to trust all these young guys and getting them to fit together in quality units. I mean, all that stuff was really impressive. He came into the season on the hot seat for like the fourth or fifth straight year. That adds, you know, a lot of pressure all the time. Um, and, you know, Kyle Lowry had a good season, but not a great season. And it didn't really show in their win total or, or anything else that they were doing. Excellent point differential um, and just consistent. And I think, you know, in terms of culture setters, 
you know, Dwayne Casey probably doesn't get put into that conversation enough. Uh, you know, but he's he's made a really, really quality culture there around his main guys while still being able to ask them to do less when necessary, which is a hard ask. Totally. Yeah. And he's developed like he deserves a ton of credit for that bench, too. Um, but let's zoom through it. We've gone too long on some of these arguments here. Six, sixth man defensive player of the year, most improved executive of the year. I think. Most of these are, are pretty obvious at this point. Uh, most improved is Oladipo. We don't really have to belabor that point. I feel like it's probably not an adequate way to like reward him for this season because uh, he's been even better than most improved. But I'm glad that he'll get some love. So I spent man I spent 15 minutes preparing my you know third choice for most improved player, <laughs> and now we just have to blow right through it. No, look, I'm all, I'm all ears here. I've got all day. Okay. We're good. Oladipo, one. Jalen Brown, two. Jamal Murray, three. Uh, I also considered okay. DeMontis Sabonis uh, and Aaron Gordon for, you know, our big Orlando Magic fan out there, Kevin. You know, I'll just name check him. <laughs> uh, but one I, Magic fan listener. That's right. Uh, it was unfortunate Porzingis got injured because I think he would have probably finished second on my ballot in this award had he played you know a larger sample of minutes but I think Jalen Brown and Jamal Murray two second year guys that took major strides forward I mean remember back okay. in the fall we were like remember the the reports out of training camp Moutier looks great you know and it's like okay what does this mean like for that position and Jamal Murray has made their offense basically 10 points better when he's been on the court drastically increased his own scoring uh, and he just has settled in and looks like you know a starting caliber point guard, and he's really doing it in a tough situation, uh, you know, at that position in the Western Conference every night. Uh, so credit to him, Jalen Brown. I think we've been over it time and again, but uh, his jump from year one to year two as a shooter, as an overall offensive uh, threat, and then just solidifying his already you know strong reputation on the defensive end. Uh, he's a quality player. I mean, there's there's not yeah. a lot you can say to knock Jalen Brown. Um, and so from that standpoint, he, he's got to get a lot of votes. Okay. Um, six man. Uh, I have Lou Will, uh, open floor MVP, Fred Van Vliet, and then Eric Gordon uh, for the Houston Rockets. Uh, you know, Gordon has probably been overshadowed by the Chris Paul uh, addition down there, but they've yeah. been awesome with him on the court. Uh, and his shooting is really, really important in terms of allowing hard in the room and, and also Chris Paul the room to go one-on-one uh, and do the isolation stuff that they do because he can spot up some uh, from so deep and teams have to respect it. Uh, you know, he just really hasn't gotten the attention this year, but I think he's been very, very good uh, you know, compared to you know, even last year where maybe he got more attention. Yeah, I, I struggled with sixth man of the year for about three minutes because you know I love Van Vliet. I mean, he's my guy, and uh, I just, I, I really wanted to vote for him, but it's almost like like Lou Will is, my, is the platonic ideal of a sharp basketball player, and over the last two years talking to you every single week, I've come to like guys like Fred Van Vliet more. But I couldn't betray my most important basketball principles. And Lou, Lou Williams has been so absurdly good that he has to win it. But Van Vliet has been above and beyond and would win most years, I think. Uh, I think he has a really strong case. I mean, but at the same time, I came back to this idea. I mean, Lou Will is like a franchise player off the bench. I mean, that's... <laughs> exactly. That's, it's kind of weird that he's still coming off the bench, but he is playing like an all-star off the bench. No, it's insane. I mean, he's averaging, you know, career-high 22.6 points per game right now, which is just insane for a, a role player. 
And that's significantly up from last year when he was, you know, basically five points higher than last season. It's just out of this world uh, for a bench guy. And L.A. won a lot of games. You know, they're going to miss the playoffs, but they were competitive for basically the entire season. And a huge reason why is Lou will basically enjoy perfect health the whole way and torch people uh, night in and night out. And he was so good, they could pull the trigger on a Blake Griffin trade because they had an idea of what was going to come. You know what I mean? I I think uh, if you don't have some other source of productive offense night in night out you f- you maybe are a little bit more skittish about trading Blake Griffin but I think they could easily talk- <laughs> I don't know I think that might be giving him a little no, bit too much credit I, I think I the Clippers think so. were ready to trade Blake in any scenario I think that they were nervous about his contract for sure but if you're ownership right and your choices are irrelevance like if you just don't have anything you can do offensively and what's it going to look what's your future going to look like you're going to tank or whatever but you're bomber you're so competitive you fly down for every game you scream like a madman yeah you're shooting off hot dog cannons. You're doing all the stuff Balmer does. <laughs> it's a lot easier to make that sell and to pull the trigger on trading Blake Griffin if you can keep yourself uh, you know, active in a playoff chase this year and also pitch to your fan base, hey, we're not going to be terrible next year. We're not going to go back to the same old Clippers. And Lou Will is the reason why they were able to do that. You know, it, he, he had that good of a season, that big of an impact on uh, not only their direction, but also just their vibe too. Steve Ballmer is so close to like a real life Silicon Valley uh, stereotype or, or, or still Silicon Valley character from the show. Uh, no question. And remember what happened right around the same time they traded Blake Griffin. They gave Lou Will a contract extension. So it was definitely a part yeah. of their uh, their, Ballmer their liked thinking. It. He liked what he saw. Um, he reminds me of the guy who took over at Hooli. I forget the names of all the characters on that show, but maybe like five people will understand who I'm talking about. Um, yeah, Captain Sweater Vest. Yeah, I, I think that guy is yeah, probably exactly. based off of Balmer, don't you think? <laughs> I think so. I think so. Anyways, all right. Defensive player of the year. We both took Rudy Gobert. I was feeling guilty about it until I read this uh, email from John who said, I've heard several NBA experts say that Rudy Gobert likely has missed too many games to win Defensive Player of the Year and that they would likely vote for Joel Embiid. Embiid has now played 63 games and roughly 1,900 minutes. Gobert, if he plays the last few games here, will end up playing 56 games and roughly 1,830 minutes. While this is 11% less games, he's only played 3.7 fewer minutes. While we all know that availability is the best ability, Shouldn't availability for larger portions of each game also be considered in the discussion? While Embiid has been really good, I don't think it compares to what Gobert has done this year. I agree with that. I think that's that's enough for me to have a clear conscience voting for Gobert, and I don't feel guilty for snubbing Embiid. Because Embiid has been awesome, and the Sixers' defense has been much better than anyone would have expected as as a result. But uh, Gobert, like in a vacuum, is so clearly the best defender in the league. I feel I, I am glad that we can vote for him. Yeah, there's no question. I mean, the Embiid injury swung this race for me as well. I, I think I was probably going to lead Embiid if he had uh, managed to make it through completely unscathed because their on-off splits with him on the court are insane. But you could say the same thing about Gobert. I think if I feel guilty about leaving anyone off, it, it's probably Horford. Uh, but I actually wound up going with Anthony Davis at number three uh, for Defensive okay. Player of the Year. Uh, you know, when they turned it on down the stretch, I mean, uh, you know, basically, you know, since Cousins' absence, he, the defensive plays that he's making, I just don't know if anyone else can make because of his length, his agility. I mean, he, the best centers 
aren't going to be able to get to the spots where he gets. And then the best power forwards aren't going to be long enough to contest the shots that he's able to get around the rim. I just think uh, he made some pretty demonstrable stri- uh, strides on that end. And it's easy to overlook that stuff when he's also, you know, just cashing these pretty jumpers from every single place on the court. You, you focus absurd. on that stuff. But <laughs> if they didn't have him... It's so ridiculous how good he is. But think about what their defense would look like if they didn't have him. And they weren't an excellent defensive team this year. You know, I'm not saying that. And usually I favor guys like Horford, who are sort of the most important defensive players on really, really good defenses. Uh, yeah. I guess I was just sort of, you know, caught up in the wave of Anthony Davis in terms of what he was doing. Yeah, we haven't talked a ton about what the Pelicans have been doing because I, I agree with you that Anthony Davis's defense has been overlooked. I also think Drew Holiday has been overlooked to some degree, although there are a lot of people like saying that Drew Holiday has been overlooked, so maybe not as much. But like he's been great. Anthony Davis has anchored the defense, which you know people weren't really sure about. And then uh, the other thing... Nikola Mirotic has been awesome for them. And like that trade, I think we all kind of like chuckled at, at another desperate Pelicans move um, when it happened. But like that trade might end up being like one of the better moves all year. And, uh, and he has really sort of like solidified their stretch run here. Yeah. I mean, I think the verdict day or judgment day is coming in the playoffs, right? Cause if they yeah. if they go out in four or five, are you still gonna feel that way? Are you gonna say nope? They just wasted a draft pick to uh, to not make any real noise, and you know Anthony Davis is still stuck in the same spot. You know I think that uh, they're a team that's like absolutely like if an entire organization could be on the hot seat, you know during the playoffs, uh, I would say it's the Pelicans. Yeah, um, yeah, we'll see. I mean the the pick that they gave up is not gonna end up being that valuable, and uh, and Miritich is there next year too, so. Executive of the year. Who do you have? Speaking well, of trades. Not Del Demps. Is that what you're trying to say? <laughs> yeah, probably not Del Demps. I'm not going that far. Uh, it's uh, it's Maury to me. Um, yeah, definitely. And, and the Chris Paul trade was the biggest addition any team made this summer. Um, you know, I thought there was, you know, really nice moves uh, made by Danny Ainge. And unfortunately, like some of them, uh, you know, backfired uh, a little bit in terms of injuries that he can't really control. So I don't hold that against him. You know, usually I will uh, still keep a guy like that on my ballot. Um, but to me, more adding Chris Paul, you know, being able to pull it off, you know, being able to position the franchise to be ready to make a move like that, having it work so brilliantly and then having it pay off better than he probably even expected. Um, and just, you know, knowing from day one, exactly what Chris Paul's role was going to be, you know, not just trading for a superstar, uh, you know, sort of like they chased Dwight Howard with, you know, not really caring how the talent fit, uh, the talent yeah. fit very well, but they saw exactly how Chris Paul would be able to succeed. They plugged him in, and it worked, you know, right to a T. So uh, I think that's part of it. I do think that that Maury doesn't really give a shit about fit as much as other teams might have, and uh, and it paid off. <laughs> like I, I'm not going to give them a ton of credit for being clairvoyant and seeing that oh, not only it, like is Chris Chris Paul available, but we're going to get him and win 65 games. I think if you if you asked him in an honest moment, he would say, "Look, like we decided to roll the dice because why not?" And that and it has paid off better than anyone would have expected. Yeah, but I do think that there was more reasons to believe this was a good fit than some of his other moves. And knowing that you could stagger the minutes and getting guys to buy into that and letting Chris Paul realize, you know, we're going to take some of the load off you, but you're still going to play a huge role for us. 
Uh, you know, that's all part of the courting process, right? Because Chris Paul could have been the number one guy on like, what, 24, 25 different teams around the league. Um, yeah. Don't overlook how difficult that was to do. Um, and it was a big risk, too. I mean, they gutted half their team and a bunch of young prospects who were really solid in Houston and have been pretty decent in L.A. And like basically turning over half the roster to bring in Chris Paul, who may or may not work and is also going to be really expensive to bring back this summer. I mean, it, it was definitely a gamble and he gets credit for for having the guts to do it. For sure. And then the other guy to mention, uh, in addition to Ainge, would be Kevin Pritchard. Um, you know, I, I actually thought about Sabonis on my most improved player list, too. You know, I was looking at his offensive impact in Oklahoma City last year. I mean, there was a reason why I was so down on that trade for them when it happened. I mean, he was terrible. He made Oklahoma City's offense so much worse. He was just misused, miscast. Uh, he was a prospect I liked coming out of the draft. But the first year results were just not very good in Oklahoma City. Uh, Pritchard and his team, not only did they target Oladipo sort of as that homecoming, you know, face the franchise guy, but they also liked uh, Sabonis and believed in their ability to turn him into being a very productive quality player. And his numbers have reflected, you know, the the better fit. They've had a great style Mm -hmm. of play. Uh, And, you know, I don't know how you nitpick Kevin Pritchard in terms of what he did. I mean, he was behind the eight ball big time with Paul George, you know, all the stuff he was saying during the... uh, uh, postseason last year, you know, Larry Bird essentially just walking off the job saying, I'm good. I'm done with this. Uh, that's <laughs> yeah, a tough spot. Totally. <laughs> that's a tough spot to be in. And they've gotten great years from everybody. Collison, uh, you know, there was other pieces that left Indiana last season. And, uh, you know, he pretty much just rolled sixes on every single, uh, you know, roll of the dice. So uh, I think that puts Pritchard in this conversation too. I'd probably have think- him second and Ainge third. That's interesting because I would put Ainge and Maury one two and it's super close and i would put pritchard a distant third i think he he did he did well everything worked out but i'm not going to go back and act like the oladipo trade was brilliant um and i like i think it's it's sort of a process versus results thing like if he if pritchard thought that he was going to get like an all nba caliber Victor Oladipo, then he was crazy last July. And the fact that it's worked out, I'm not going to give him like 100% credit for that. I think Oladipo's body has changed and he's been awesome. But uh, I think we might overstate it it, to say that he had a better year than Danny Ainge. Uh, That's a good point. I mean, the the other thing, though, I look at with this award— Oftentimes, it's sort of a multi-year award, you know? So if the Celtics yeah. win, like, 65 games because Hayward comes back and Kyrie comes back and, and you know, Ainge makes one other move uh, this year, whatever it might be. Um, I, I forgot to mention the Tatum trade. You know, that was an excellent trade as well. The Tatum trade was huge, yeah. Like, I mean, that's, that's part of it. And I also just think that – and it's hard because we're giving – Brad Stevens for I'm giving Brad Stevens credit for uh, coaching with a sort of an undermanned roster, and I'm also giving Danny Ainge credit for scouting really well and finding guys who are like uh, who fit that scheme perfectly. And so I feel okay about that. If someone else wants to call me a hypocrite or a Celtics homer, it'll be the first time in like years that I've ever been called a Celtics homer. But uh, I think he gets credit for turning over a team like they lost i think nine or ten guys this this year and were were able to replace all of them with like useful pieces yeah i just think if we're going to hold you know the surprise of oladipo's uh you know 
breakout against Kevin Pritchard, we have to hold some of these injury issues against Ainge too, right? Like, uh, if the results aren't coming, the best thing you could do is just wait until the results do come and then reward him at that point for years of built-up, you know, moves. And so if that means giving him <laughs> next year's Executive you, of the Year award, you, that's what I would do. But, you know, like, okay. like, you can't just say, oh, he made a Kyrie Irving trade. Oh, home run. Well, Kyrie's injured. He's not going to play in the playoffs. That doesn't affect that trade, how we analyze that? Yeah, that's fair. Um, I, I guess that is fair. Um, I, I was going to make fun of you for saying we do have to hold the Hayward injury against Ainge. But, uh, oh, I'm not blaming Kyrie him thing, for the injury. I'm just saying like, yeah. his overall no, the, job is going to look... Everything he did last summer is going to look a lot better next year. That's my point. And um, at that point, he should be considered a very, very legit candidate. And it, it shouldn't just be a one-year award because teams aren't built in a year. I think that's an unrealistic way of doing it. Yeah, I agree. Um and hats off to Daryl Morey. He, he deserves it. And he's taken a lot of grief over the years. So uh, moving on, though, we've gone too far. We're not going to get to any of the questions that we had today. First team All-NBA. Uh, we did have one extra question here um, from Kevin who says, You guys always seem to hate and kill Russell Westbrook's game so hard, especially Ben. A lot of the criticisms you both give are somewhat justified, but I do believe both of you are not giving him the respect he deserves and truly recognizing his greatness and impact. There are only a handful of players in the NBA who can truly terrify a team, and Westbrook is one of them. So, did Russ make your first team All-NBA? No, not my first team, but he made my second team, and I've been seeing some people leaving him off completely, and I think uh, just we need to clarify the terms here you know when we're crushing Westbrook it's like we're, we're crushing him compared to like the top five players in the world right exactly <laughs> it's like the the bottom half of the top 10 versus the top five it's not uh we're not calling him trash and I think we should talk a little bit about how awesome he was against Houston on Saturday night because that gave me a little bit of pause with the all NBA stuff yeah, so well, the guards were really hard to do, and I'm going to have a pretty shocking omission, I think, and a pretty shocking inclusion when you include them side by side. But my first team guards, okay. uh, now remember, I do weigh availability pretty heavily on these. Now, I know some people don't. I know there's an argument out there that says, well, this should stand up for history. Just pick the 15 best guys, regardless of how healthy they were. Um, I try to weigh health. And for me, the guy I had to leave off because of that was Steph Curry. And I, I'm not saying there's six better guards in the league. You know, I'm not even uh, saying there's six better players in, you know, in the league. You know, to me, Curry's a top three talent, but he missed such a big chunk of the games. He doesn't really play that many minutes when he does play that even if he probably had the top three impact overall of any player uh, in the in the game this season, probably him, LeBron and, and James Harden in some order. Right. I had to right. leave him off because he just didn't play enough. It pained me to do it. Uh, but I didn't see any way around it because there were so many guards who were playing for really strong quality teams, having huge impact and putting up big numbers that there just wasn't a way to squeeze him on. Okay, sure. I, I mean, I'm curious to see who you who you named because I didn't never I never got close to even considering leaving him off. Um, the NBA really needs to clarify the criteria with all NBA if we're going to keep tying this to, to contracts because it's hard to know whether we're talking, like you said, what, are we talking about just like the 15 best players or are we talking about who had the 15 best seasons? For me, I weighed it like 70% best players, 30% season, um, but it's a tough 
thing to try to navigate every year. Yeah, I'm almost the opposite. I'm probably like 80% best season, 20% best player. But, you know, it it really is tricky. And there's not uh, a clear rhyme or reason to how to do it or much direction from them. So obviously it was a difficult decision. But here's who I came in with. My first team guards, James Harden, Damian Lillard. My second team guards, Russell Westbrook, Victor Oladipo. My third team guards, DeMar DeRozan and Chris Paul. And obviously Chris Paul kind of gets in at that last spot over guys like Steph Curry and Kyrie Irving, who were also, uh, you know, had injury issues. I just thought Paul had the best combination uh, combination of health uh, plus obvious impact. Plus I do value Houston's winning a lot. Uh, I felt like it was the right thing to reward both their guards uh, with a spot this season. Oof, that's really interesting. Uh, I, I left Chris Paul off. I'm really upset. Can we make DeMar DeRozan a front court player? I haven't looked at the actual ballot yet, but my my all NBA teams would be perfect if I could slide DeMar DeRozan to a forward spot. But right now I'm agonizing. I believe you can do that uh, if I'm not mistaken, but I couldn't find any spots to like slide him into. You know what I mean? Like there's deserving people everywhere. I thought this was an excellent crop of, you know, of all NBA candidates. Uh, my first team forwards were like LeBron, Kevin Durant. Second team forwards, Giannis, LaMarcus Aldridge. Third team forwards, Horford and Jimmy Butler. So if I was like going to move DeMar DeRozan, that was either going to require bumping uh, Jimmy Butler, who has actually played a ton of minutes despite his long injury absence. Yeah. Uh, so he was up there for me minutes-wise. Uh, Horford, I felt like I needed to have at least one Boston representative, you know, given how strong their season was. Uh, kind of same thing with Aldridge in terms of his role for San Antonio. I just couldn't find anyone to slide out of there. Uh, and if I snubbed DeRozan completely and I didn't have a single <laughs> member of the Raptors, uh, that didn't that didn't feel fair either. So th- that's where I came down. Okay. Well, all right. So I went Anthony Davis at center, uh, LeBron James, Kevin Durant, James Harden, Damian Lillard. I did think very hard about putting Russ first team, um, but... In the end, he was so mediocre for the first like two months of the season when I think he was coming off of surgery and he just like wasn't the same dude. And uh, and in the end, what I thought about was like if you gave Damian Lillard that OKC roster, I think OKC would be a little bit better than they have been. And if you gave uh, Russ that Blazers roster, I don't think that they come close to being the three seed in the West. And uh, so Damian Lillard is first team. Second team, I had Steph and and Russ as the backcourt just because I think, like, Steph is... I understand that he's only played 51 games, but he's probably the third or second best player in the league. And uh, I feel like this is... You've got to recognize that. And third team, if I'm allowed to slide DeRozan, I'm bumping Jimmy Butler and putting... Chris Paul and Victor Oladipo in the backcourt. And then my forwards are DeRozan, Al Horford, and Rudy Gobert as as the center. Yeah, so my first team center was Davis, Anthony Davis. Second team center was Joel Embiid. Third team center was Carl Anthony Towns. The only thing I don't really like about my ballot is I do have two Timberwolves on there with both Jimmy and Cat. Mm-hmm. And they haven't really played, you know, quite well enough to justify having, uh, you know, two representatives. But... I didn't really feel like I could snub either one of those guys. I mean, Gobert obviously missed a lot more uh, games than Towns did. Uh, Jokic versus Towns, I'd still kind of side with Towns. And then I felt like Butler had to be on because, you know, you wrote a piece in the middle of the season about how he's sort of a maybe a top five MVP candidate yeah. at that point. 
And because Tibbs ran him into the ground, like his minutes total, despite missing like 20 games, is comparable to a lot of guys who played, you know, 65 to 70 games. Uh, And so I think his impact during those minutes was uh, sensational and difficult to snub here. So, uh, you know, if I had one regret, it was having two Timberwolves representatives. Otherwise, I'm feeling pretty good about how I spread the love around, making sure that each of the you know top teams had at least one representative and, you know, not fudging too much on positional designations either. Yeah, for me, it comes down to like a a triangle, a love triangle, all-NBA love triangle of uh, Jimmy Butler, DeRozan, and Chris Paul. And of those three, I think DeRozan and Chris Paul's, like their team success is the tiebreaker for me. And maybe that's not fair, um, but... That's that's where I come down on it, and I, I like Oladipo. You you can't bump Oladipo because he's been so good for and and literally it's like one of the only reasons the Pacers have had the season that they've had. Um, I don't know. I mean, I know you bumped bumped uh, Steph. I can't get that. I can't get there. He's just too good. I realize that. And look, I mean, do you think I feel great? Am I going to sleep very well having DeRozan on and Steph off? No. (laughs) (laughs) It's tough. It's tough. But I I think under these circumstances, it's the fair decision. And look, uh, it's it's tricky. Um, But, you know, in the past, I've tried to always say, you know, like, 60 games is a pretty good benchmark. Chris Paul is very close to that. You know, Curry, obviously his minutes, even when he plays, are not very high, sometimes because they're winning by so much, sometimes just because they go light on him. Uh, But there was a lot of really, really good guards this year putting up monster numbers and playing huge minutes. And that to me was a tiebreaker that I was hoping not to have to uh, use. And had he not had that most recent knee sprain, like the ankle stuff that he dealt with earlier in the season wouldn't have been disqualifying, obviously. Yeah. Uh, but he's missing a huge chunk of the season here. I just couldn't get over that. Yeah, well, um, it would be easier if the NBA made it clear for what we're voting on. I, I still skew toward just best players in the league. Um, but with that, let's come back, and uh, we have go- We don't have time to get to any of the other questions. Let's, go- let's save it for Friday. We'll do a mega mailbag headed into the playoffs um, and uh, maybe do some fake awards for Friday. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we should run through the all-rookie second teams because there were some really close races for a couple of those spots. You know, no, no question about it. Uh, <laughs> totally. But, we'll dig into uh, De'Aaron Fox versus Dennis Smith Jr., I'm a little bit even wary of encouraging people to email openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com with how they want to nitpick our teams. But please go ahead and feel free to do that. Send in any other awards you'd like us to hand out, you know, real, fictitious, goofy, whatever they might be. And don't forget, go to Apple Podcasts, find uh, the Open Floor page, just search Open Floor, we'll pop up, scroll down, it'll say rate and review, go ahead, give it five stars. It's just that simple. Andrew, until later this week, I'll talk to you. All right, man. Take it easy. Another great edition of Open Floor is in the books. Did you know Locked On has a daily podcast for all 30 NBA teams? If you're a Lakers fan, search Locked On Lakers. A Celtics fan, search Locked On Celtics. Warriors fans, search Locked On Warriors. Yes, all 30 NBA teams have a daily bite-sized podcast on the Locked On Podcast Network. Search on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts for Locked On, your favorite team. Or tell your smart speaker to play podcasts, Locked On, your favorite team. It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.